Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, Fish Head by Irvin S. Cobb. This is first published in The Cavalier, January 11th, 1913. We're reading it out of the uh, publication in Famous Fantastic Mysteries, combined with Fantastic Novels, June 1942. Uh, FFM, uh, Famous Fantastic Mysteries, and Fantastic Novels were two terrific reprint magazines reprinting, uh, almost exclusively reprinting. There was some new stuff in there, too. Uh, Early 20th century weird fiction um and it's got a beautiful illustration by virgil finlay but unfortunately it does not depict the title character Fishhead. uh are you familiar with uh irvin s cobb had you been familiar with his name or likeness no to this story no and that's one of the reasons i'm so glad that you uh you sent this this work my way Mm. i am so impressed by the writing in this and uh, when i came to research him a bit the man was prolific Mm -hmm. and if and um as as you well i'll let you tell about him but um the question you tell about him if you like and then i have a question sure uh it's uh, we're sort of looking at um I, I like to think of what we do here as kind of looking like a uh, paleontologist. We, we find a, a beautiful rock, <laughs> and it's got a fossil in it, and that fossil indicates that there was a whole uh, ecosystem that we don't know very much about because we're living uh, thousands or millions of years later. Um, in this case, it's only about 100 years later, uh, but Irvin S. Cobb was a, a fairly huge figure, uh, not just physically, but... Um, as a writer, his stature is hard to understand, except uh, comparing him to people like Stephen King or uh, J.K. Rowling. You know, somebody who you you would recognize the face of as an author. Um, in part, this is because he had um, multiple movies adapted from his stories, in which often he would be the star, <laughs> which is hard to understand as well. You know. Um, he was on the cover of, uh, of pulp magazines as a, like a, photo- a photographed man. This is a feature. We know this, this guy. Um, and yet the only thing I, <laughs> only reason I know anything about him is because H.P. Lovecraft mentioned this story in supernatural horror and literature. So his, his, um, fame has fallen like a stone after World War II Basically, nobody knows who he is. But in 1933, he's he's prominently shown with his daughter advertising Hupmobiles. And, like, he was huge in in the United States popular consciousness. If if an author can be thought to be huge, he is one. And, and of course, now, today, nobody knows who he is. And and that was the question to which I have uh, my own small answer that I'll save for later, but I'd love to have yours. I, I, he he hosted the Seventh Academy Awards. He was when he was working as staff writer for uh, the New York World, uh, Joseph Pulitzer's uh, 
newspaper in New York. He was the highest paid newspaper staff writer in the country. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he, he wrote book after book, fiction, nonfiction, um, reportage for one journal, one outlet after another, screenwriting, acting. I mean, just astonishing, mm-hmm. astonishing. And, and yet, as you say, he died in 44. The war ended. I guess there was other big news after he died. But nobody went back and said, hey, what about that guy? We mm-hmm. used to be reading his stuff all the time. Um, how come? Why isn't this a reprint somewhere? And so on. Mm-hmm. So I have my own thoughts, but they are based on little. I wonder if you have mm-hmm. some idea. Well, it's it's bizarre, isn't it? Um I, I kind of think of like how movie actors, right? There's a, there's a, a whole class of movie actors who I know almost nothing about because those movies were never rebroadcast or I guess broadcast at all on television or anything. And yet there's all these 40s actors and even some 30s actors who I would recognize and and know who they are because I've seen that. And I think uh, there's nothing so ephemeral as a newspaper, right? Um, and he isn't known for his his novels. He's known for his short stories, which, again, is a uh, strike against you. The fact that H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft uh, is known today is shocking compared to Irvin S. Cobb because Irvin S. Cobb was huge in his lifetime, and Lovecraft was very minor except within the people who knew who he was. So that that transfer of legacy is mysterious and odd and it's not really easy to explain other than I think there is a kind of um, the reason we know about this one is because it has a touch of the fantastic and uh, stories of culture seem to wane more than stories of um, the mysterious stories that reach beyond to the edge of uh, almost spirituality or something like that because um this uh, this story i I was thinking about how it's similar to one we did on this podcast before called frog father Mm -hmm. obviously you know they're both to do with swampiness but the thing that makes them connected is not the good writing which both of them have although quite different um it's the it's the numinous right it's the uh that connection and this is basically Fishhead is the only story uh, that is really genre in that sense and that may be the reason uh, There, there's another reason I'd like to offer mm-hmm. although this isn't the big reason that I'll hope to get to later the other reason I'd like to offer uh, comes to my mind because of an experience I sadly shared uh, way back in the beginning of my academic career mm-hmm. there was a, a good friend of mine who came up for tenure um, in a given year. And in that very same year, someone with about the same teaching credentials uh, mm-hmm. and about the same research credentials um, who who studied a very narrow um, field. I mean, he basically, he was, I don't want to say the real thing, but so um, um, it's as if, he all of his academic work were done on the the tragedies of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, but my friend um, had published a bit on pedagogy and published a bit on Renaissance literature and published a bit on American literature. 
Um, the department offered tenure to the fellow with a narrow focus and denied it to my friend. Mm-hmm. When he went and asked why, he was told he didn't seem to have a, a solid focused research plan going forward. He was just too scattershot. Mm. It seems to me that H.P. Lovecraft, and you know his work better than I, but um, I have read a lot of it. Uh, it seems to me that Lovecraft really falls in a comparatively narrow zone. Oh, yeah. And that lends itself to having fanatics. I mean, oh, yeah. The etymology of fan. So people who like Lovecraft, it's a very special taste, but people who like Lovecraft can really, really, really like Lovecraft, and mm-hmm. they can decide to read everything that he's written and talk about everything that he's written with other like-minded people, whereas with Irvin S. Cobb, what, what exactly does it mean? You know, I like an Irvin S. Cobb story, or I like an Irvin S. Cobb screenplay, or I like, I mean, they're so different. Mm-hmm. He's done so many different things. And I wonder if one of the reasons that he has wasn't picked up again is that he didn't have that coterie because the people who saw him on a continuing basis either saw his work in movies, which were then supplanted by the talkies, mm-hmm. or they saw him in newspapers, which, as you say, are ephemeral. And so no fan base. But that doesn't mean his yeah. writing is good. I oh, think right. superb. It's, this this story is beautiful to hear. Like listen if you listen to the words as you read them. It's beautiful. It, the descriptions are gorgeous. What what's so shocking is the story is it barely has any kind of plot and it goes quite a ways before you even oh, oh yeah, where oh there's a story, there's a plot in here before we get to that plot. It's most it's and this is all the reasons why Lovecraft loves it is the is the gorgeous descriptions of pretty much everything that's happening and the background and the the setting is so strong and uh, I think there might be something a little bit to what you're saying in terms of you know what his specialty was um, his specialty was Kentucky which is where he's from this story set in top left hand corner of Tennessee uh, where it meets Kentucky I, I, my geography is a little bit bad but no just, you've got that backwards actually yeah it's it, it's he, he, he it's was awful. born in Padu- he was born in Paducah which is on the north part of Kentucky and uh Real Foot Lake is on the northern part of Tennessee which is right. all the way on the other side of Kentucky right um in any case um these i was like looking at there's a little peninsula nearby this real this real lake which uh, the geography and the history, although a little bit uh, uh, flourished, <laughs> is real. This is a real story, uh, a real lake, and a real place. Um, it's not all whole cloth creation by Cobb. But one of the things that happens uh, as the 20th century goes by is uh, the rural areas become depleted of humans. They become... Uh, less and less occupied and less and less uh, populated, and the cities fill up. This is a phenomenon we've seen all over the world. In the 20th century, it was happening in the United States, too, and uh, World War II changed a lot of that. So a guy from Kentucky ends up moving to New York and Los Angeles, and he's all over the United States, and he isn't in Kentucky anymore. And I'm talking about Irvin Cobb. 
but that's also true of the people. You know, Kentucky's still there, and and people still live there, but they tend to live in the cities. And and so this, the romance of the rural, which is here, which is astonishing. It makes me want to go visit this lake, right? It's just so beautifully written. Uh, I think that is a kind of uh, phenomenon. You could be a person interested in the geography of literature, and those people will be exciting and excited about it, and I want to be that person. But the problem is I don't live there, Eric. I want to go visit it, but I don't live there. So if you're a reader and you live in Kentucky, this might be your favorite story. But I'm sure Irvin S. Cobb's stories would be much more prominent in Kentucky because he wrote a lot about Kentucky. Mm. Ah. I have an idea. The story is sadly too long for us to, to read aloud, but the writing is so good. What I'd like to propose is uh, reading the first oh, page, mm-hmm. meaning about a sixth of the story, this small type, um, and then some highlights to get through the story as a whole. Mm-hmm. Which will give us the flavor of the uh, the style as well. Is that all right? Sounds good. Fishhead begins thus. It goes past the powers of my pen to try to describe Real Foot Lake for you, so that you reading this will get the picture of it in your mind as I have it in mine. For Real Foot Lake is like no other lake that I know anything about. It is an afterthought of creation. The rest of this continent was made and had dried in the sun for thousands of years, millions of years for all I know, before Real Foot Lake came to be. It's the newest big thing in nature on this hemisphere, probably, for it was formed by the great earthquake of 1811. The earthquake of 1811 surely altered the face of this earth on the then far frontier of this country. It changed the course of rivers. It converted hills into what are now the sunk lands of three states, and it turned the solid ground to jelly and made it roll in waves like the sea. And in the midst of the retching of the land and the vomiting of the waters, it depressed to varying depths the section of the earth's crust 60 miles long, taking it down, trees, hills, hollows and all, and a crack broke through to the Mississippi River so that for three days the river ran upstream, filling the hole. The result was the largest lake south of the Ohio, lying mostly in Tennessee, but extending up across what is now the Kentucky line and taking its name from a fancied resemblance in its outline to the splay-reeled foot of a cornfield negro. Niggerwood Swamp, not so far away, may have got its name from the same man who christened Real Foot, at least so it sounds. Realfoot is and has always been a lake of mystery. In places, it is bottomless. Other places, the skeletons of the cypress trees that went down when the earth sank still stand up right so that the sun shines from the right quarter and the water is less muddy than common. A man peering face downward into its depths sees or thinks he sees down below him the bare top limbs upstretching like drowned men's fingers all coated with the mud of years and bandaged with pennons of the green 
lake slime and still other places the lake is shallow for long stretches so no deeper than breast high to a man but dangerous because of the weed growths and the sunken drifts which entangle a swimmer's limbs its banks are mainly mud its waters are muddy too being a rich coffee color in the spring and a copperish yellow in the summer and the trees along its shore are mud-colored, clear up their lower limbs after the spring floods when the dried sediment covers their trunks with a thick, scrofulous-looking coat. There are stretches of unbroken woodland around it and slashes where the cypress knees rise countlessly like headstones and footstones for the dead snags that rot in the soft ooze. There are deadenings with the lowland corn growing high and rank below and the bleached fire blackened girdles trees rising above barren of leaf and limb there are long dismal flats where in the spring the clotted frog spawned cling like patches of white mucus amid the weed stalks and at night the turtles crawl out to lay clutches of perfectly round white eggs with tough rubbery shells in the sand there are bayous leading off to nowhere and sloughs that wind aimlessly like great blind worms to finally join the big river that rolls its semi-liquid torrents a few miles to the westward so real foot lies there flat in the bottoms, freezing lightly in the winter, steaming torridly in the summer, swollen in the spring when the woods have turned a vivid green and the buffalo gnats by the millions and the billion fill the flooded hollows with their pestilential buzzing and in the fall ringed about gloriously with all the colors which the first frost brings gold of hickory yellow russet of sycamore red of dogwood and ash and purple black of sweet gum and then the story does the same job with the wildlife Mm -hmm. in real foot lake going from the vegetable world to the animal world and again making it so vivid and giving us again resonances with things of death, of dying, of decay, except this time it's predatory animals, some of which are apparently prehistoric. Mm -hmm. The fish that seems to be the last connection with prehistoric reptiles. These monstrous creatures, these catfish of real foot, scaleless, slick things with corpsey dead eyes and mm. poisonous fins like javelins and huge whiskers dangling from the sides of their cavernous heads. Finally, we get the opening description of the title character. Fishhead was of a piece with this setting. He fitted into it as an acorn fits its cap. All his life, He had lived on real foot, always in the one place at the mouth of a certain slough. He had been born there of a Negro father and a half-breed Indian mother, both of them now dead. And the story was that before his birth, his mother was frightened by one of the big fish so that the child came into the world most hideously marked. Anyhow, Fishhead was a human monstrosity, the veritable embodiment of nightmare. And then we get a terrifying, vivid, lengthy description of how this man looks like a monstrous catfish with Mm -hmm. a huge mouth, able to, uh, one supposes, like the catfish in the lake, uh, eat its prey. 
for the most part, they, the people who knew of his existence, the other people around Real Foot Lake, had a superstitious fear of him. So he lived alone with no kith nor kin, nor even a friend, shunning his kind and shunned by them. For there were ugly stories about Fishhead, stories which all the Negroes and some of the whites believed. Then we get a description of how he lives, where he lives, in a cabin in the swamp with a, a cottonwood log extending from it, a place he likes to sit and perch himself, the end of the log being in the, in the water itself, sitting still, communing with the, the swamp at the end of each day. Here Fishhead had lived, and here he was going to die. Why? Because the Baxters were going to kill him. And this day in late summer was to be the time of the killing. Finally, we get to some plot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The two Baxters, Jake and Joel, were coming in their dugout to do it. This murder had been a long time in the making. The Baxters had to brew their hate over a slow fire for months before it reached the pitch of action. The feud itself was of months standing. Meeting Fishhead one day in the spring on the spindly scaffolding of the skiff landing at Walnut Log and being themselves far overtaken in liquor and vainglorious with a bogus alcoholic substitute for courage, the brothers had accused him wantonly and without proof of running their trout line and stripping it of the hooked catch, an unforgivable sin among the water dwellers and the shanty boaters of the South. Seeing that he bore his this, seeing that he bore this accusation in silence, only eyeing them steadily, they had been emboldened then to slap his face. Whereupon he turned and gave them both the beating of their lives, bloodying their noses, bruising their lips with hard blows against their front teeth, and finally leaving them mauled and proned in the dirt. Moreover, in the onlookers. A sense of the everlasting fitness of things had triumphed over race prejudice and allowed them, two freeborn sovereign whites, to be licked by a nigger. Therefore, they were going to get the nigger. Jake is the better oarsman. Joel is the better shot. They go out in a boat, a dugout, a primitive dugout they've made. They stake out Fishhead's home And they come back another day and hide behind another fallen log overgrown with rank vegetation. They see him come home. His splay feet with the prehensile toes outspread gripped the polished curve of the log as he moved along its swaying, dipping surface until he came to its outer end and stood there erect, his chest filling, his chinless face lifting up, and something of mastership and dominion in his poise. They go to kill him. In that swift passage of time, too swift almost to be measured by seconds, realization flashed all through him, and he threw his head still higher and opened wide his shapeless trap of a mouth, and out across the lake he sent skittering and rolling his cry, and in his cry was the laugh of a loon and the croaking bellow of a frog and the bay of a hound, all the compounded night noises of the lake, and in it too was a farewell and a defiance and an appeal. The heavy roar of the duck gun came at 20 years yards the double charge 
tore the throat out of him. He came down face forward upon the log and clung there, his trunk twisting distortedly, his, his legs twitching and kicking like the legs of a speared frog, his shoulders hunching and lifting spasmodically as the life ran out of him, all in one swift coursing flow. He was pulled down and down, one swift coursing flow. At this point, whatever has been summoned by his appeal reaches up from below the surface of the water and first silently, in unavoidably, pulls down the first brother. And then the second brother screams in his slow descent into drownedness. He was pulled down and down by steady jerks, not rapidly, but steadily, so steadily. And as he went, his fingernails tore four little white strips in the tree bark. Jake's fate was harder still, for he lived longer, long enough to see Joel's finish. And then, as the water subsides, we get another lengthy subscription. We get another lengthy description of the swamp coming into its own again. Mm-hmm. The bodies of all three came ashore on the same day near the same place. Except for the gaping gunshot wound where the neck met the chest, Fishhead's body was unmarked. But the bodies of the two Baxters were so marred and mauled that the real footers buried them together on the bank without ever knowing which might be Jake's and which might be Joel's. Uh, It's amazing, right? The... The the plot is all in service of the atmosphere. And this is actually why Lovecraft makes note of it. This is uh, from a letter he wrote in 1913, the year this story came out. Obviously, I think he read it. Um, he later writes about it in uh, Supernatural Horror and Literature, his massive survey of basically what would become weird fiction. He wrote, It is the belief of this writer that very few short stories of equal merit have been published anywhere during recent years. It's not that it's not that he loves the the plot and the characters. It's the atmosphere that allows the characters to become real. Cobb is is kind of he's known not for this. He's known as a humorist. But he does this thing where he conjures and conjures and conjures and conjures. And when we finally get to the plot, we're like, okay, there's a guy who has a cat head for a (laughs) catfish head, and that's normal. We're, we're, We're up for this. And then there's a plot that shows what, what it would be like to be, uh, half-breed of Negro and half-breed of Indian and and to be hated by the white uh, poor people nearby because of some minor dispute and to be murdered and to have the kind of secret, the numinous on the edge of what is possibly real. We don't know about him. He lives off in the woods. He doesn't have any friends. People observe him and we fear him. And then we have reason to fear him because he knew something and that's the story very simple but full of conjuring i agree it is i i I think it also has this is how i read it at least um i think it also has very powerful 
social commentary. Mm-hmm. I think in this little bit of plot that we get, it is there is no piece of it that is not thought out since there are so few and since the control of language is so clear. Mm-hmm. So that Fishhead was unjustly accused as crucial. The Baxters are poor white, poor in every way, we're told. Mm-hmm. They are what nowadays is called white trash, a, mm-hmm. a terrible, a terrible uh, uh, denigration. Uh, and so when they find, aha, we can get away with trying to show our dominion over this fellow, um, they hit him. And then he hits back, and he is powerful enough to thrash both of them. Mm -hmm. And in a world in which the lake is named after a scurrilous stereotype of blacks, and he is himself identified with the lake, Mm -hmm. and the lake itself is is, um, described as running against creation— and making the river run upstream for three days, mm-hmm. right? It is the result of a cataclysm, the great earthquake of 1811. He, Fishhead, stands for all this. And the other whites who see this insult being uh, uh, turned into, a, into a, a thrashing, they decide over and above their own racial prejudice that this was justice. Mm-hmm. That's what the Baxters can't stand. So what happens? They go to kill him, and in fact, they succeed. Whites do succeed in this this Jim Crow era. That whites do succeed in controlling the blacks, but by golly, Fishhead brings them down with him because he comes. He summons whatever the swamp has, mm-hmm. and therefore, the swamp, which everyone stays out of. The swamp is the other. He is the other. And this story has nature, therefore, being the other. It's the city men who come up and try to engage Fishhead as a guide. Mm-hmm. Right? As you were saying when we began, nowadays the rural is gone. Right? I mean, very, very diminished. Even in Kentucky, even in Tennessee, the majority of people live in the cities. Mm-hmm. The, the swampland is the other fish head is the other it is going to be something the other that dies but it shouldn't but that's what the whites do so much so that you can't know what's jake and what's joel Mm. i think that that this son of the south really understands something about the south and he actually is taking a view that is not accepting Jim Crow and fostering it. He doesn't make the original insult something where Fishhead slipped up and honestly, honestly offended the uh, the Baxters. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is turned around, and it seems to me that uh, that this story is not merely numinous. It is, but it's also pointedly political, mm-hmm. and it gets everything across with almost no plot but spectacular description. Oh, yeah. When you tell a story this well, I think you go back and you read it again and again because looking at sentence by sentence and 
metaphor by metaphor. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.